listening to the Art Problems Podcast, episode 24. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. And before I dive into this week's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am offering a free webinar, How to Get Seen in the Art World. This is happening live Tuesday, July 18th at 7.30 p.m., and Eastern Standard Time, and it's to kick off the quarterly network enrollment period. That's the membership I run, which will be open for that week. Now, I am super excited about this particular webinar because I updated it with all of the current information on best practices when it comes to your visibility. So for example, if you are wondering how to get seen in a social media recession, I have got you covered. And I know that many of you are feeling the pains of this because we are all experiencing a contraction in that field. And just a note that if you are a member, you already have this information available to you inside the portal, so you don't need to attend. And as a part of the process of preparing for this webinar, I wanted to get like a more concrete sense of what the artists that I work with have gained and how they did it so that I could track and report our progress and success, and also so that I could share what's working for artists with you. So today, I am reporting our research and findings to you, and I'm going to share with you how the membership that I run helped secure close to a million dollars in grant funding for NAFRC members, the artists inside that that program, my my membership, in just two years. Now, I want to make clear that I didn't ask members about sales. So that number isn't included in the revenue that artists have earned. That's coming, but we don't have that yet. And in full transparency, these numbers are estimates. They're based on the grants that members have reported. And in order to determine this number, what we did is we reviewed the awarded grants that our members reported through a survey, but also what they reported inside the member portal. But our members don't always report when they've won an award, so we don't always know. And a lot of times, awards come in in in-kind support, and that number can be a little bit nebulous. So an example of that for you, which actually is a little outside of the network membership, but one that I have real numbers for. So I recently spoke to a group of 12 writers at the Charlotte Street Foundation in Kansas City as part of a week-long intensive that they ran for artists who write. So the cost to participate for artists was nothing, but the cost to produce the program was $10,000. So I know that the value of that intensive was roughly 830 per artist, and that's with nobody making a profit, which of course you don't need to, it's a nonprofit. But if we hadn't asked the host, we wouldn't know the dollar value of that program. And the reason we asked the host was actually because I was running a, a webinar on like transparency and how to get paid and all these things. So I thought it would be interesting to just find out what that number might look like. Now, it's quite common that artists won't know the dollar value of in-kind support, which is why I believe that number may actually exceed a million dollars, but I have no way of showing it. So of course, I'm not going to report something that I can't actually confirm. Now, 
the reason that so many network artists have been able to financially benefit from the membership is that they made an investment in their communication tools, their website, their artist statements, their Instagram, et cetera. And I also want to give you a timeline here because I think it's really important to be transparent about the length of time that this takes, which is not insignificant. And I I know that everybody wants a solution to visibility issues right away. And I know that because I want it to, you know, <laughs> and it, and because I know that I want to be able to say that I can deliver that. But honestly, if I could do that, no artist would need me because you'd be able to do it too. The members who won the largest amount of grant money, a $55,000 Guggenheim grant and cumulatively $140,000 separately by another artist, have they have both been in network since the start. So that's about two years. They weren't working on those grants for two years. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that it was that long, but you know, they both invested in individual coaching as well. And not just for me, from other people. And I'll be honest, neither grant would have been possible without years of experience before network. Because of course, these are mid-career grants. They're granted to people who've been doing this for a while. So both artists put extensive work into figuring out exactly how to describe their art. And I also want to say here that it only came naturally to one of the two artists and the person it came naturally to, he had, he had to do a lot of edits too, because everybody needs editors. So if you feel like, you know, maybe you just don't have the capacity to speak about your work well, let me tell you this. You can do this. I, I know this because I've seen this. The person who wanted $140,000, this was not easy for her. It's not, it was not easy for her to talk about the work. It takes time. But if you put effort into the art, there is a way that you can talk and write about it that others will find compelling. Now, it won't work if you don't challenge your art. Because it will be apparent in the process of writing that you haven't gone deeply enough. But if you're challenging yourself, if you're doing the work, I can help you. And others inside of Nefer can help you too. One of the reasons we have such a high success rate inside Nefer is that artists help other artists. I've always felt that this was the foundation upon which a healthy community was would be born. And we recently made eight longtime members, mentors inside the program. So they spend dedicated time each week with other artists on the platform, giving them feedback. So you're going to get the support that you need. Now, what I've noticed, interestingly, <laughs> is that the importance of different support materials varies depending on your focus. So for example, what I found is that it's more important to have a well-designed website in the commercial art world than it is in the nonprofit sphere. Now, it's important in both. I don't want to diminish this, uh, but you can sometimes apply for a grant without a website. Creative Capital is like that the first round. They don't even, there is no field for you to put your website. But the majority of a reviewer's time is going to be spent on the submittable app or whatever the software is, not your website. 
Now, by contrast, most dealers won't work with you if you've only got an Instagram. And that's because they need high resolution shots, which, you know, they they have to have those to give them to collectors and they can't get them off your Instagram. So it doesn't read as professional. So they're just not going to send people there. So what constitutes a well-designed website? I'm going to go through a couple of these qualities. First, professional quality photographs of your work. Dark, poorly lit photographs will ensure that you don't get opportunities. So update them if that's a problem. And if they're old and you don't have better documentation, in many cases, it is best to remove it. I don't want to make a blanket statement here. Sometimes you you have to deal deal with the chips you're given, let's say. But most times, if you have something different, just photograph that. Just use the most recent work. Now, speaking of which, your most recent work typically will be taken with a pretty good camera. So large images are really important. If you have small images on your website, they're too hard to see. Some dealers, let's say they're old and need bigger images. Other dealers are young and they're used to big images. So there's basically no small photo that anyone wants to see. So if you have smaller photos on your website, replace them with something larger and that that has good quality. I can't emphasize this enough how important it is. Also, number three is proper captioning information. People need that information to determine whether it's something, if they're a purchaser, like whether it's something that's going to fit or, you know, a, a gallerist, whether it's going to fit on the walls. They need to know that information. Also, number four your name in a font that is easily read and remains on every page. So basically, the front page, the home page of your website is going to have your name on it. If you have art in the background that makes your name impossible to read, that is not good. Because if people remember the art and they don't remember your name, they're never going to find you again. So you have to have your name in a very legible font. And here's a little uh, tip for anybody who is looking for tips, which is what this whole thing is, which is mobile. When viewing on mobile, a sans serif font is most easily readable. So if you don't know what a serif is, basically it's like the little feet that are attached to letters. If you're, if you're using a font with those kind of curly cues and embellishments, that's harder to read. So you want to avoid them because they don't read well on mobile. And 50% of what people look at will be on mobile. You're also, as point number five, you're going to want a CV that is easily found on the about page or in the navigation menu. And finally, number six, a means of contacting you on the about page and in the footer. And you want to say where you live. So if a curator or dealer contacts you, they know what's involved in showing the work. So if you live in a remote area, don't hide that. It's just going to annoy someone if they find out 
they thought you lived somewhere else, and then it's an issue with their budget. You don't want to surprise anybody like that. You want to make it super apparent so that they can mentally plan for what they need to show the work. Now, there are probably, in fact, not probably, there are definitely other things that could be on this list, but I think those are the big ones. If you remember and address these issues, you will have a website that functions better for you. Now, if you're in the commercial world, an artist statement may not seem that important because most collectors don't want to read artist statements. Dealers don't often don't want to do it either. Uh, if you talk to consultants, they'll just be like, why bother? Now, if you are in that situation, you're largely in the commercial world, but you are, let's say you're ambitious. You want more things out of the commercial world. And it's fine. If you're making a living and you don't want a prestigious grant like the Guggenheim, don't worry about it. But if you do want a prestigious grant like the Guggenheim, which by the way, has a deadline in September, so that's coming up, it's going to make a difference to your commercial and nonprofit showing opportunities. And these things are built on artist statements. Now, in the case of the Guggenheim, it's what's referred to as a project statement, which is specific to a to the proposal, not like a whole body, like a lifetime's worth of work. But much of that language will come from your statement. So the work comes first, of course, especially in the Guggenheim. That's what they read first. But you're not going to find an awardee who submitted a proposal that wasn't easily read. Now, in the granting world, in the commercial world, in any part of the industry, the first step is always to do your research so you can spend your time wisely. What that means is that you need to spend the time to know whether you're a good candidate for some of these grants. And this is one of the things that we do for members. We help our members determine if they should be spending their time on a Guggenheim. Because let's face it, these applications are time intensive. And if you join at the annual level, we assess the stage of career that you are at, and we will suggest setting goals like the Guggenheim for those who we know will submit competitive applications. Inside the membership also during the month of August, we dedicate a lot of resources to helping members assess the grant, the time they have, and whether it's a good time to apply before we even get started with the support on the application itself, which includes live group coaching support, winning application samples. And we actually bring in coaches who can help with the writing. So that support exists for you if you are inside the membership. So this year I worked with an artist in network who won a Guggenheim fellowship of $55,000. But the artist who won the grant, Aaron Rothman, spent a lot of his time on the artist statement when he joined the program. And then he did about two or three rounds of edits, I can't remember how much now, on his application with me. So he had a lot of feedback and frankly, a really strong application. And that is going to be a consistent with anybody who wins that grant. On the academic side of things, if you're a tenured professor, for example, a great artist statement will help you get money 
from the school that you work with. So we had one member who I spoke about earlier who worked for a year on her statement inside the program, transformed her website, hired a grant writer to help her build on the work that we had done with her statement and applied for a large grant from the university. And so in total this year, she's been awarded close to $140,000. So what does a good artist statement look like? These are the rules that I have for you. Number one, it tells me what it is in the first or second sentence. So these rules are actually in order of like what you need to be considering. So you can write like, I make paintings about. The language doesn't have to be beautiful. And to be honest, the format is, is it isn't even designed for that. It's like workhorse copy. It's practical and descriptive. Nobody wants to think about it this way, but it's no different than a product description in utility. So, but the thing is, is if you do think about it that way, it might help you write when you get nervous about it. Because when I made art, which was a long time ago now, but still writing artist statements used to terrify me because I was afraid that I was going to learn that my art wasn't purposeful enough, that I wasn't smart enough to write something good. And I want to tell you that that was such bullshit. You know, I think we all go through phases like this. And it doesn't mean that even now I still get nervous writing about things, but I know that that's part of the process. And so just putting in the work and knowing what the purpose of the copy is will help you. So it doesn't have to sound like poetry. And and in fact, if it does, it probably won't be appropriate for what the purpose is of an artist statement. It's really just about letting people know what you're doing and why. So the second rule here is that it tells me what it looks like. So after you tell me, you know, I make paintings about blah, blah, blah. What is the scale? What is the subject matter? Where is it shown? How can I picture this work? If I can't picture the art, the statement is not doing its job. So always try to think if you could paint a picture with words for somebody about what the work looks like so that they have a sense of what it is, then your artist statement is really doing some work for you. And number three, it tells me why you made it. What is your purpose? Now, this is where I think a lot of artists really struggle. And the thing is, is that this is the hard part. And it should be hard to put it into words because good art exists as art for a reason. It's it's better as art than it is as words. But the point of this, though, isn't just to explain why you're making the decisions you're making, but to distinguish your art from other artists' work. And the way that you do that is by being very specific about your intentions. Why are you making, why are you making this mark as opposed to that mark? What, what is behind your decision-making? Even what an intuitive process has intentionality to it. No one can imitate that. And that is always 
your secret weapon. It's not really that secret because it'll be public, but it's still, that's, that's the thing that will distinguish you from everyone else. So your statement, and just to be clear here, your statement can have a lot of other problems, but if it accomplishes these three things, it's only three things, it's copy that you can use to get you grants. The other thing to remember here is that grantors know that you don't write for a living. That's the, so there, there is some margin of error here. You don't have to be perfect. It just has to get the job done. It has to tell me what it, like what it is, what it looks like and why you made it. And if you've got that, that's all you need. Now, before I sign up, I just uh, sign up. <laughs> before I sign off, I just wanted to give another quick reminder to, to those who are interested in joining my free webinar, How to Get Seen in the Art World. It is happening live Tuesday, July 18th at 7.30 p.m. And I will be diving in to a lot of these things, all of the things that made that close to a million dollars possible, you're going to learn about how some of that money can be possible for you. The, the time commitment is about an hour and a half. It's an hour for the webinar and about half an hour for all the questions. And I'm going to stay for as long as you need for me to answer all those questions. So I will see you there. Thank you for listening to the Art Problems Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or share it on Instagram. It really helps get the word out. And don't be afraid to reach out and let me know your thoughts. You can DM me on Instagram or workshop.art at, at any time or leave a comment. I want to hear from you. <laughs>